0: Agile Rabbit Make Events for Curious Minds In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs, and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information visit agilerabbit.com Here is Dr Andrew Griffiths, telling the story behind his headline-grabbing work that recently identified threatened sharks on sale to the British public. Thanks everyone for coming it's nice to see so many friendly faces. What I really want to tell you a bit about today is how you can use molecular genetic approaches for things like shark conservation. Like most people we tend to go out and see people tagging and counting and doing traditional ecology but molecular genetics can actually give us some really interesting insights into all kinds of biology but uh, also uh, kind of shark and ray conservation. So so that's what I'm going to focus on today, DNA barcoding. I also need to say one more thing I when I was I got filmed for Blue Planet recently which is very exciting I was on there we go (laughs) the producer kept telling me off for saying the word elasmobranch when I was being interviewed but elasmobranch is just the word for sharks and rays so if I use that term that's all I'm talking about is I'm talking about sharks and rays I thought it could turn into an excellent drinking game every time I say the word elasmobranch if you all take a drink from your pint I'll know how many times I'm using it during the talk So anyway, so that's what we're going to be talking about is how we can use genetics to look at shark and ray conservation, not the E-word. Molecular genetic approaches allow us to get real real insights into biology. The genome of an organism holds its entire evolutionary history. it's shaped by natural selection, so organisms become adapted to their environments. We can understand so much about the ecology of organisms by looking at their genetics. and of course the genetic diversity in populations not only reflects their evolutionary past but it's the pool of diversity which allows them to adapt to future environmental change. So understanding what diversity there is in natural populations is really important for understanding how things can adapt to things like global environmental change or other environmental challenges that are present in the globe today. So, so that's that's basically my intro. I got interested in genetics and then fish during my PhD. And fish are a fantastic model because they're the most diverse, the most speciose group of vertebrates on the planet, so they're also a really important part of our biodiversity. And after working on trout, I eventually got drawn to the best fish, or group of fishes, which are the sharks, of course, which is is what we're going to be talking about today. So let's fast forward to one of my most recent papers that is the focus of the talk today. All of these terms we found in our studies to label sharks or their kind of designations, commercial official designations allowed by the UK government. and In fact, the light blue labels are labels that we found uh, some often at fish and chip shops, um, and the dark blue ones are those that are officially recognised in terms of UK legislation. But I'm kind of curious to know, how many of you would know if you found something labelled as rig, for instance, that it was shark? Any, anyone at all? I had never heard of the term skin dog before we started collecting samples, which that was collected from from uh, East Anglia and so I kind of think that these labels are not particularly useful and this was really the starting point for my research because in actual fact this group of dark blue labels about half a dozen can be used in to designate I tried to count them all up around about 47 different species of shark it's pretty much the most useless label that we have for designating foods when it comes to raw unprocessed foods. And even more confusingly, there is an official designation of shark which excludes all of these species and all of these groups as well. So it's a really confusing situation and I really wasn't convinced whether the labels would fit with, with what um, was actually designated or what we'd find when we actually started trying to analyse some of these products. So the results surprisingly got uh, coverage in quite a few newspapers and a huge number of horrendous newspaper puns, which I love, I have to say. <laughs> Lots of references to Jaws about safe to go to the chippy, although this is my favorite from the Guardian, Some fins Fishy, it's a, the a best I think. So, so that leads to the question in some ways if you've got a plate of fish and chips and you've got your battered fish in front of you, how on earth do you know what species it comes from? And this is where the molecular genetics part of this talk really comes in. We did something known as DNA barcoding and like most good science I think it's actually a really really simple idea that has lots of different applications in biology. So about 10-15 years ago biologists started going out collecting voucher specimens of of as many animals as they could get hold of, then they took them back to their labs and sequenced them with a very specific set of primers, a very specific common gene that uh, everybody started uh, using to then try and sequence every animal out there in the world and I think it's an amazing aspirational aim to create this public library of sequences for every organism and that's still rumbling on, there are governmental campaigns in some areas to to continue this kind of work whales uh, paid to get all of their and plant life DNA barcoded so so there's a a real impetus in the last 15 years to try and get this common set of reference DNA barcodes for all organisms on the planet so people went out, collected voucher specimens of known species, sequenced them at this specific gene, and then put all of that data freely available on the internet in in big repositories like GenBank, which is the biggest public kind of repository of genetic information. And they even came up with a dedicated kind of baseline software known as the Barcode of Life database, where everybody can go and look at these these barcodes. And instead of being black and white, they're made up of four colours, represented by red, black, blue, and sort of greeny, yellow representing the four different bases which are the kind of like underlying all DNA and the code for life essentially. Most species have unique barcodes meaning that if we identify the barcode we can identify the species that it come from. So we've got barn owl here and a horned owl. They don't look that similar and in fact there are quite a lot of differences in their sequence. We can see there's like uh, quite a few red and black bits of the barcode here which don't match the one for the for the um, horned owl. Not so useful perhaps for telling apart species that are really obviously different, but of course there are lots of examples of cryptic species in biology and these butterflies are a good example. Astraptes butterflies, they're part of a big group of species that are all cryptic they look very very different as larvae as caterpillars but they're really really similar when they're adults and even entomologists can't very easily tell them apart they have very similar barcodes because they're very closely related species but there are differences between them so this allows us to identify what species they are even when they're difficult to identify and of course This is great for biology because it means that we could go out into the environment, get part of an animal, but we're not even sure which animal it comes from. We could sample fish and chips where we have got the fish flesh, sort of removed from all of the diagnostic features we can use to identify what it comes from, and increasingly now biologists are using it in an even more abstract way, just going out to collect water samples, filtering all the DNA from the water, and you sequence everything with these barcodes, and you can work out all of the organisms that are present in the environment just from looking at the DNA that's within the water. But we need to have these DNA barcodes, these baseline um, databases, to be able to facilitate the identifications. And so that's what we did in the paper. We got samples not only from fish and chips, but also from um, shark fins. So I've got some examples here. Uh, There we go, show and tell. So these are... um, often used in Asian medicine and some Asian cuisines as a celebratory dish. There's been a huge increase in the sales of shark fins globally since the 1980s. They get dried in the sun, so these are really, really hard. Um, And then they get shipped to kind of hubs like Hong Kong in Asia, where they get further processed and they end up looking something like these little almost spaghetti-like wisps of yellow. They don't really look anything like shark fins. There's what gets processed and put into shark fin soup but of course from these kinds of samples it's impossible to work out what species of shark they've originated from. So we use DNA barcoding collecting DNA from some of these samples to try and work out exactly which ones they may come from. And the results sort of surprised me. In some ways they did and in some ways they didn't, because what we discovered is that from a very small number of shark fins which we got from a wholesaler here in the UK, so they were about to be passed on for sale to Chinese restaurants and um, takeaways and and Asian supermarkets, so absolutely we're going to be sold here in the UK, but we got them one step before at the wholesaler, and we found a whole range of endangered and threatened species. Most significantly, (coughs) this one, the scallop hammerhead it's a CITES listed shark it's an appendix to CITES which means that you're not actually allowed to sell it over a International borders or import export without a specific license because the numbers have declined so much. And certainly, the wholesaler didn't have a license for importing CITES listed species, they didn't even know what species they came from. So, we found a couple of different species of hammerheads and short fin Mako sharks. And we also got a set of samples from um, UK Border Force, who do a fantastic job of trying to prevent the illegal um, sort of movements of some of these fins, seized sharks from Africa. And we found a whole range of different requiem sharks which are kind of consistent with the sharks you'd expect in Africa. So we we're quite confident that the barcodes work. We got sensible answers. Things like scalloped hammerhead, although their are is listed, are very easy to fish because they form very big shoals and so they're actually quite commonly sold in terms of, of shark fins. So, so our results were, were consistent uh, and probably accurate but it links us in the UK to this tremendously damaging international kind of sale of shark fins because this sale of CITES listed endangered species is going on in the UK around us as we speak. About a quarter uh, of sharks and rays, the elasmobranchs, there we go, (laughs) are threatened by extinction. This makes them one of the most threatened groups of vertebrates that we have on the globe, probably beaten only by the amphibians in terms of their decline. Predominantly, these declines have been driven by overfishing. Other elements, things like global environmental change and habitat destruction, have probably had a role. But predominantly, it's overfishing, which is what's driving these declines. And people have often linked it to the increase in the sale of things like shark fins in the 80s and 90s. The positive news is that sales of shark fins are beginning to decline in Asia, which which is good news for sharks more generally. Um, But that actually means people are becoming more and more concerned about sharks in terms of sales of shark meat, which is actually increasing. And FAO figures show huge increases in the global trade of shark meat in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. So it's a sort of sad picture for sharks and rays globally. And the reason they're declining is really all about their biology and their life history. They are, for fish, extremely, as a general rule, there are some exceptions, very slow-growing and they produce very, very small numbers of eggs or offspring. Many species of sharks and rays actually produce live offspring, so in some ways they're more like mammals. Uh, The most advanced species of sharks even have placental-like connections between their embryos and, and the mother sharks. So they invest a huge amount of energy into all of their young and they tend not to produce huge numbers of young at all. It means they can't replace themselves very, very quickly, and that's very different from something like a cod or a haddock, which a big female can probably release tens of thousands of eggs in a season. Most species of sharks just cannot replace themselves that quickly, so they're very vulnerable to overfishing and and some species have gone near extinct just through bycatch, untargeted fisheries, almost by accident, uh, because they just don't recover very fast from, from fisheries pressures. So so I want to talk a bit more about some of the analysis that we did for fish and chips, uh, which made all the papers uh, and also uh, we also analysed a large number of, sort of very fresh products from, from fishmongers. What again surprised me but is perhaps unsurprising as well was that the most common uh, species we identified, making up over 90% of the samples from the fish and chip shops, was the spur dog Squalus acanthius, which is a beautiful little grey shark. Um, that we have off our shores here in the UK. It is listed as locally endangered in Europe and is still in one of the threatened categories of vulnerable globally, reflecting huge declines in this species. back about 100, 110 years ago, it was often called the most abundant shark on the globe and and its numbers have really, really plummeted in the last 100 years. It's been used for a whole range of different products in Europe. Before the massive synthesis of things like oils, the oils from shark livers, which they use to maintain their buoyancy, were used as um, lamps, light oil, and, and the oils had a huge range of different uses. It's a sort of traditional medicine. In the 40s and 50s, the shark liver oil was found to be very, very rich in vitamin A, I think it is, and so there was another spate of overfishing related to that. And through this entire period, They've probably been the kind of de facto choice for fish consumption in terms of shark consumption in northern Europe. It's eaten in the UK very commonly, in France, and and quite a lot in Germany. It's a very traditional dish there as well. So here in Europe, our fishing in the last 100 years has caused this shark to become endangered in our waters. So it's not just this global picture of declines driven by shark finning. We've all had a role in declines of sharks locally here in the UK, and this is one of our biggest declining sharks Uh, and and again it's, its declines are related to its biology. It only reaches sexual maturity in its teens and on average a female only produces about six live pups every two years. So you can imagine Something like this can't replace itself uh, in the face of intensive fisheries pressure for a hundred years very, very easily, and that's why it's declined. So, we found this shark in fish and chips most predominantly, but also across a whole range of, of other samples. We did find an interesting range of sharks, most of which aren't threatened, um, and it is important to say that there is quite a large import of. Uh, spiny dogfish from other stocks across the world now because ours has basically collapsed so we've been importing spiny dogfish from different stocks all over the globe that has driven some of those stocks to collapse as well but they do also come from sustainable fisheries in fact the only or the first or perhaps the only sustainable shark fishery is for spiny dogfish in America and there are large numbers of this species in the areas around New Zealand. One of the limitations of DNA barcoding is we can pretty much only identify these things down to species level, I can't tell you whether the samples from the fish and chip shops come from this endangered local stock in Europe or whether they come from sustainably sourced stocks in places like America, but I can tell you they are the most commonly sold species in fish and chip shops and I can tell you that in the last 100 years our use of them and our overfishing has driven this stock to to become um, endangered. But generally, many of the species that were sold weren't threatened. But it tells you a little bit about the diversity of species that we have in the UK. We found a small number of blue sharks, nurse hounds, starry smooth hounds, which are all sort of small to medium sized sharks that are are common in our waters. Something that didn't make it onto the television was some of the results of another paper that also came out around about the same time where I'd been working with some of my collaborators in Greece because we also did a very similar study where we looked at what species were being sold there. And in some ways, the. The picture there was even more sad than what we found in the UK, because uh, their labelling is much more specific, it only relates to about two or three species, uh, and we found huge amounts of mislabelling. Over half the samples were mislabelled, over half the species are locally threatened in the Mediterranean that we identified, and almost a quarter of the mislabelled products actually come from species of shark with prohibitions or CITES listings, these preventions from movements across international borders. Uh, in Greece. And amazingly, which really surprised me, we found one example of an angel shark being sold in Greece. Angel sharks are one of the most endangered species we have in Europe. They're critically endangered, just one step away from extinct in the wild. They have undergone huge declines, uh, and I was really shocked to find that kind of really endangered species on sale in Greece. We also found a thresher shark, uh, which is also CITES listed and, and threatened. So we found a huge diversity of things that i really didn't expect to to spot in greece including some of the most threatened sharks that we have in europe which is which is very very sad we didn't find that in in the uk which is good And that's really been driving some of my interest since then because I've been really desperate to find out what the pattern is elsewhere in Europe, not just Greece. So I've got some of my scientific collaborators in places like Portugal, Greece and Spain to help and go out and collect samples. It's been fantastic because I've actually been trying actively to get involved with shark conservationists, members of the public in in a range of different places. Shark Project are a huge conservation group in Germany, Austria and, and Switzerland. Shark's mission in France I've been talking to in the last few weeks and they've been promised to go out and collect samples in all of these different countries where shark is sold so we can investigate exactly what is what is being exploited and what is being sold whether there's mislabelling and whether there are endangered species being passed to the public which probably shouldn't be but it's been actually a really uplifting experience because all of these people are really actively engaged in shark conservation but all of them have jobs doing completely different things one's an accountant one's a pharmacist the pharmacist is amazing Iris in um Germany, she has single-handedly been waging a war against the MSC sustainability labelling because she doesn't think it's really very sustainable and she's been collecting huge amounts of evidence and calling them to book about some of the deficiencies in their labelling and she just does it all in her part-time when she comes back from the pharmacy. It's absolutely amazing! So uh, yeah, she's blown my mind really and it's been (laughs) lovely to be working with these people doing some genuine citizen science where hopefully they can go out, collect some samples and we can tell them what it is there they're buying and we can actually discover whether there are prohibited endangered species being sold further across Europe. So that basically covers a lot of what we, we did in the paper but I can't give a presentation and not tell you a little bit about UK species of shark which I really love and I think they don't really get the press coverage they deserve and I think because people dive less here, the water visibility is less good, and it's a lot colder, people have less contact with them, so people don't really appreciate what amazing diversity of sharks we have here. I could probably talk to you about this one slide for about an hour, but I promise I won't. The thresher shark that we found on sale in Greece has its huge tail that apparently it's meant to use to smack its prey and stun it before it catches it. We do occasionally, rarely, get visitors some species of hammerheads uh, with their wide apart eyes which are meant to give them better vision for catching their prey. One of my favourite big predatory sharks is the porbeagle beagle shark here, one of the most large growing and aggressive of the sharks that we get in the UK. This lovely shark here, the Greenland shark, made the news a few years ago. People looked at isotopes to try and age these sharks. They could be the oldest vertebrate living on the planet. They found one individual that they estimated had lived for over 400 years. That tells you something about how vulnerable these sharks are if they can live for this long and tells you a bit about their reproductive rate. So this isn't even all of the species of shark we get. There are probably over 20 species of shark. It depends how often some are seen whether you class them as being uh, UK or not and then approaching that number of rays and skates we have in the UK as well so that's a huge diversity that people I don't think really appreciate that we have and we can see these are all the species that the IUCN has listed as being locally endangered or critically endangered so the two most endangered categories that, that they have but only locally so the stocks around Europe and we can see some really weird looking sharks here big eyes these are all deep sea sharks. we begin to get more and more concerned about deep sea species. They're particularly slow growing and seems to produce particularly low numbers of offspring and with things like deep sea mining and as we exhaust more pelagic stocks of fish people are beginning to delve deeper and deeper into the ocean and perhaps begin to exploit some of these very vulnerable deep sea sharks. So that's why many of these species are listed as endangered here in Europe. These are the big three endangered species of um, sharks and rays. Not all of these are sharks. I briefly mentioned the angel shark, this really weird looking shark that doesn't really look anything like your typical vision of what a shark is. It's got a flattened body and it looks more like these species of rays or skates that we have in the UK as well. So skates and rays are very closely related to the sharks, cartilaginous skeletons, but they have this flattened morphology. And all of these species uh, as their morphology suggests are associated with the bottoms of the continental shelves the bottoms of the oceans and so of course some of the most intensive fishing, trawling, tends to um, suck up all of these fish. These are some of the largest species and they are the most vulnerable ones because they take the longest amount of time to reach sexual maturity and tend to produce the smallest number of offspring. So, So these are sort of our big three. They're not just endangered or critically endangered in Europe, they're endangered or critically endangered across the world. So very, very close to extinction in some of these cases. Some of these species have almost disappeared uh, and they've never really been a target of fisheries; they're just what we call bycatch. So they get landed and sold, but the fisheries for some other fish species. So the fact we can almost eradicate these by accident, I think, is, is quite significant. So I'm going to move away from sharks a little bit and talk a little bit about skate, which I also love working on. And one of the first elasmobranch I worked on was the common skate it is an absolute vast fish it's really really beautiful it has the record as being the largest rod and line captured fish so here we go this is Daniel Bennett catching the largest common skate um, in Scotland on the Isle of Skye they estimate they couldn't weigh it it was too big uh, they estimate its weight was uh, over 200 pounds and it was over 88 inches long and just for comparison I've stolen this from a paper it's bigger than a lowland gorilla at 200 pounds, a female lowland gorilla. So how on earth he managed to land this fish, I have absolutely no idea. It's one of these critically endangered fish that has basically been disappearing from our shores. So I did some work about 10 years ago. We did DNA barcoding, which is how I can talk about this in this talk. We sequenced it as a specific gene. And when we collected samples from all around the UK, uh, what we discovered is actually we had two very distinct groups of sequences. One group of sequences in red was separated by 27 different mutations from another group of sequences. And as soon as I saw that information, I was like, we actually have two completely different species here. The sequences are so different that they can't come from a single species. Uh, we did some other investigation with some other molecular markers, had exactly the same result, huge separation of these green and red groups. And it actually turns out that this critically endangered species that we've been overfishing for decades is two species, both of which are probably much closer to the brink of extinction than was previously thought. And what one of my uh, current postgrad students at the moment is doing is trying to trace more samples of common skate and try and work out exactly where these two different species are present and update that picture from 2002 where the common skate had gone extinct from much of its range and work out where each of these two different species are. Certainly one of the most sad declines of, a, of an bank species here in the UK. I also did a little bit of work DNA barcoding skate products because of course skate wings are another common product that you see often in lots of different supermarkets. The results from this were much more positive than perhaps the shark results so we didn't find any of these critically endangered species being sold, which was a bit of a relief. But one of my collaborators has been looking at landings of things like some of the common skate and the other critically endangered elasma banks. and even after it started becoming prohibited being landed there were still records of the species being landed. We just didn't identify them in some of the products and the question is what happens to these skates when they're landed. Maybe they go into things like cat and dog food, uh, but hopefully the numbers of those being landed are, are really declining now, but what the analysis of products does again I hope is high highlight the huge diversity of different skate species that we have in the UK. We found around about half a dozen being sold. They all have beautiful different markings. The cuckoo skate, which has these wonderful little cuckoo markings on it. They are a really beautiful and diverse group of species that I don't think people see all that often either. Uh, So we have some very, very large, growing, endangered species that you'll be lucky to see and some much more common and beautiful, beautiful patterned skates that we often see off the coasts in the UK as well. So I hope over the course of this presentation, I've convinced you that molecular genetic approaches, you don't have to just tag things or go out and count them, can have really important applications in ecology and conservation. And I've really only talked about the simplest molecular approach, DNA barcoding. There are members of staff at the university doing some really amazing molecular genetics to to understand insights into ecology and evolution, which are really mind-blowing. So it's really only the tip of the iceberg of what we can do with these kinds of approaches. I hope I've also, this is my my main aim, convinced you that we actually have a huge diversity of sharks and rays here in the UK, deserving of our attention and protection. We've had a role in the declines. Things like the Spur Dog and the Common Skate have been been driven to these quite sorry states because of overfishing and overexploitation. And what I really hope as well is that we can improve the situation of labelling of some of these products. The shark products are probably the least informative labels on on any kind of fisheries product and we really should be driving towards much more specific labels so that we can identify the vulnerable species. But there's also human health elements to this. Some sharks have been associated with very high levels of heavy metals and mercury so I think we have the right to demand labels that allow us to make informed decisions about what we're buying and that's not currently what the government do around many fish products. It's not just sharks, tunas and eels, other endangered species can be sold under quite Uninformative, useless labels. So, hopefully, we can change that. And I also wanted to try and convince you to become citizen scientists and collect <laughs> samples for me uh, of shark products from fishmongers. So, I have brought about 20 tubes with me today. So, I'm hoping that I can convince you, particularly if you live further afield than Exeter as well, now you might be able to get me a sample from a fishmonger's from a shark product. And if if you do, that would be fantastic. I could include it in my next paper. Uh, and I would really love this information. So whatever was on the label, a species name, the hus, whatever the hell it was labeled with, the shop you got it from, although I'd never publish that and share that publicly, and the date and the price of the sample. All I need is a very, very tiny bit of shark fillet or whatever the product is, but you can always look me up on the university website as well, which has got my address to return the sample to me as well. <laughs> Cheers.